Welcome to the ADHD Lounge Podcast. Whether you are someone with ADHD or a learning disability or just curious to learn more, come hang out with us in our lounge. I'm Alex. I'm a mom, a New Yorker, a Mets fan, a yogi, and a brunch enthusiast. I also happen to be diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD at the age of eight. I'm the founder of Capable Consulting, a coaching and consulting business that supports adults with learning disabilities and or ADHD. And I'm Katie, an ADHD advocate, coach, mom, author, founder of Women in ADHD, and I host the popular Women in ADHD podcast. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and now I have made it my mission to help neurodivergent adults learn to love their brains. In each episode, we'll be diving deep into the world of ADHD, discussing unique challenges, sharing our personal stories, providing support and resources, and bringing in experts to help us along the way. You can also find the two of us over at the ADHDlounge.com, an all-in-one ADHD coaching community for personalized guidance, goal planning, skill building, expert roundtables, and so much more to help you make the most of your amazing brain and live life to the fullest. So grab your favorite drink, maybe a croissant, grab a seat, or start walking or cleaning or however you choose to listen, because at the ADHD Lounge, you can come exactly as you are. Welcome to episode four. This conversation is a follow-up to episode three, in which we interviewed the delightful registered dietitians, Sarah and Alita from Wiseheart Nutrition. So if you haven't yet listened to episode three, you might want to listen to that one first or go back to it after you've heard this episode. Katie and I are going to talk about our personal experiences and our journeys with food and related to ADHD, and it should be really fun to hang out at our kitchen table. Okay, so this episode, we are going to be talking about our own personal experiences with diet culture and food and some of the realizations and ADHD, some of the realizations that we've made in our own lives. Me diagnosed at the age of 45 with ADHD, Alex being diagnosed very young, but at the same time, coming to a lot of these realizations into adulthood, I'm guessing, right? Oh, yeah. So why don't we start, Alex, I want to hear your story. Like what, in a nutshell, I know that these stories are always complicated, but what was your experience with discovering intuitive eating or discovering haze in your own life and haze being health at every size? Right. I When I think back to kind of my struggles with food, it had so much to do with being diagnosed at the same time. And I know, Katie, if if anyone is going to listen to the episode we had just done with Sarah and Alita right before this, you'll know that your diet culture kind of unpacked itself, like anti-diet culture unpacked itself with your diagnosis. And I would actually say, I'm surprised that I didn't have that realization as well, because this was something that came to me when I was eight years old too. I was actually struggling with food before I was diagnosed with my ADHD and my dyslexia because I was so anxious. I was so anxious that I couldn't read, that I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't want to be called stupid. I just didn't understand why I wasn't fitting in with everybody else in school that I resorted to eating. And it resorted to being very particular and very picky about what I was eating because it was the only thing I had control over. My parents brought me to doctors 
And we're like, maybe she's allergic to all of these things. And no one stopped to say, like, maybe this kid's really anxious. And I I had struggled with being picky for most of my childhood. And everyone always said, like, Alex is the pickiest eater. She wouldn't do this. She wouldn't do that. I love my mother. She'll probably be listening to this. We've joked that she was the worst cook ever in the sense that like food was made out of the microwave or when the doorbell rang. And that was also part of this. It was like this sensory experience that I wasn't getting in the way that I needed. And that like fast forward into adulthood, I had sprained my ankle for the fifth time and now needed reconstructive ankle surgery. And I remember reaching out to a friend of mine who was a dietitian and said, I'm about to be sedentary for the next six months. And I don't know what to do for myself because I'm terrified of gaining weight. And she stopped me and said, she's like, why do you care about the number? And I was like, I don't know, because everybody tells me I I should be scared of whatever number is going to come out. I'm scared that it's going to be so hard for me to like reduce the number when I'm, when I'm done and able to walk again and all these other things. And she was like, okay, like let's unpack, like where did this come in? And that kind of unraveled so much decision fatigue that I'd struggle with, sensory issues that I was struggling with, anxiety that I was coping and looking for over my entire lifetime. So this has been very eye-opening for me over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That was something that really was fascinating to me after my ADHD diagnosis, looking back at my history with dieting and how wrapped up we tend to get, or at least how, how wrapped up I would get in like the numbers, right. And just getting like being so perfect. Like I really liked rigid diets. I'm thinking about one called, oh God, why can't I remember what it's called right now? Um, it's the one where like you could only eat carbs or protein, but you couldn't eat them together. Oh God. And it was these California dietitians. I think I don't want to get into the specifics of various diets, but that requires too much thinking. Well, but I really liked it. Like I felt like there was a part of it that was really appealing to me in terms of how can I follow all these rules to the T and like, how can I be a really, really good student and do things perfectly? And so sort of like what Sarah was talking about with the, her perfectionism around food rules for me, that was so appealing. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I ended up my real, you know, my, I I yo-yo dieted and weight cycled for most of my life, but it wasn't until Weight Watchers that I got into really, really disordered behaviors because the whole program, was built around numbers and points and good food and bad food and all of that. And then, you know, to the point where you're weighed when you meet that, like everything was around the scale and it was so fucking terrible and miserable. And yet for me, it was like everything I had dreamed of because I could, I could tell finally if I was being good or bad. And I think that that's something a lot of us as neurodivergents feel like that need to be good, right? That need to quantify whether we are right or wrong because we so often feel so chaotic and so confused. And this was like a way in which I somebody was telling me I was being good or being bad. Yeah, I, I know way too many people, I will not share who, but who have struggled with eating disorders specifically because of Weight Watchers. And I remember also my mom, you know, my mom also grew up in diet culture. My grandma was into diet culture. I remember my mom was 
trying to lose weight for my sister's bat mitzvah. I'm pretty sure it was my sister's bat mitzvah. And they were going, it was her and her friend. And her friend had become a, a lifetime member when she was like 30. And I guess a lifetime member, you had to stay a certain weight within like five to 10 pounds of it. And then you got your like lifetime membership. But she was like 30 at the time and she's had four kids since then. And your body changes and like just name all of these things. And I remember my mom telling me like, oh, but she no longer has a lifetime membership unless she gets down to this weight. And I remember thinking like, how how exactly was she supposed to do that? Like, doesn't that make no sense? I remember she had, we had friends over and my friend and I like made brownies. And my mom's like, I saved all week because I knew you and your friend were making brownies. And I was like, all week for a brownie? Like, this is stupid. I like, I never thought of myself as like being sucked into any of this. I didn't realize I was still living in diet culture. And I don't want to sit here and blame my mom. This is, this was like a, I grew up in the 2000s where every magazine was doctored. And this was like every show I ever watched, the girls were basically emaciated. I struggled with all kinds of body image issues regardless, but it was, I don't know. I, when I, when I think back to it, I was like, I don't have an eating disorder. Because I didn't know that me forgetting to eat all day and binging later was an eating disorder. I thought of the same things that everybody thought of at the time. It was like anorexia and bulimia. That was it. Like I didn't know that I had such a poor relationship with food or that I struggled with sensory issues that if it wasn't like a different texture, I don't know. It was just, how did I not know these things? I don't know. Well. I mean, a lot of the time, a lot of the behaviors that are listed as eating disorders are only troublesome if you are underweight. So yeah. the same behaviors yes. are encouraged in people who are in larger bodies or even in normal size bodies, right? So, I mean, of course we didn't know, like it was everywhere. And this idea yeah. of of thinness as the ultimate goal is it's really something that we've had to dismantle when it comes to health and and health being synonymous with smallness and and sort of you know some of even some of the like you know all of the white supremacy and racism that's involved in that as well so like there's so much but i think one of the things that was also especially disordered with weight watchers for me was my relationship with exercise and my relationship with self care got really messed up with this idea that you could sort of exchange exercise it was like a currency so you could you could earn points you could earn food through exercise which is so fucked up like i'm still unpacking all of that right that idea that like movement and exercise that i still have a lot of that to work through in terms of like i have to exercise more because i had ice cream last night or you know like that it's all of like that there's this idea of burning off some of your decisions around food or or even just the like yeah i'm going to starve myself before a certain event and all of that like the way in which we think about it as currency is so messed up and I blame Weight Watchers and I blame all those, you know, all of diet culture. There's so many other programs out there that do the same thing. So part of me is like, I shouldn't pick on Weight Watchers, but yeah, I should pick on Weight Watchers because it's uh, terrible. <laughs> They're all bad. 
It was like the whole thing of like sweating for the wedding. Like I remember like that was like shirts that people were buying around the time I was getting married. And I was like, is your husband not going to love you for looking exactly the same way you did when you got engaged? Like I, I, like I always talk about this with my clients. There's so many things that you intellectually understand, but emotionally struggle to catch up with. And that was one of those things that like I intellectually understood how stupid some of these things were, but it I was still susceptible in a totally different way. And actually it was so interesting. I went out to breakfast yesterday with my husband and we were like in this tiny restaurant and there was not that many people because it was like a middle of the week breakfast. And the women behind me are continuously talking about like, what diet they were trying and how this one was trying this tea. And she switched from almond milk to oat milk because it had protein. It was like, and I looked at my husband and I was like, I I can't help but be distracted by like this conversation behind me. And he was like, how those fries are like delicious. They are so delicious. Like, you know, (laughs) Constantly being distracted by it is also just so frustrating. Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things I wanted to circle back on that you had talked about in our last episode with Sarah and Alita was the perfectionism or the people pleasing, right? And the people pleasing with neurodivergence and how that affects. Like, do you think that people with ADHD are more more body image obsessed, or that you know that we set tent? I because that we tend to like need to prove our worth more than the average bear. And so because we need to prove our worth, we're looking for the easy ways to do that and easy ways to control things like weight and food in the moment of like, what's the connection there? You think? I don't know. I was actually, it's so interesting because I was just having this conversation with a client this morning about everything she was talking about was related to her value and her worth and everything was external and everything you just meant was external, that you only had value if you looked a certain way. You only had value if you weighed a certain amount. I mean, if you had, like, why isn't it just what's in your head that comes out? I don't know. I don't know if we're more susceptible or less. I think there is a feeling of rejection that happens more with people with ADHD and learning disabilities. That is you constantly feel like people hate you and you're looking for reasons why. And so that might be part of it. I'm not like a psychologist or or a therapist that I can clinically say that that's it, but I would say culturally, I'm sure we're just more susceptible to that because we're just more in tune with our emotions and more sensitive to that and more sensitive to being rejected for something we said or did or look like. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that there's also a sense of needing control and people pleasing is in its own way. It is a form of control, right? Which is like, I want to control how people see me. I want to control how I'm being viewed. And that's masking, right? I mean, that's a form of masking, which is like, I want to present to you this curated version of myself who is perfect. And I think a lot of that comes from this, the chaos, right? Like the chaos in our brains, maybe that makes us want to feel like we have more control or some of, like you said, that the constant rejection about who we fundamentally are as learners uh, and that there's a right way and a wrong way and we fit squarely in the wrong way. So we start to like, feel like 
we're wrong, right? Like that's kind of how we develop our personalities as children. And so how does that manifest? It manifests in us trying to mask and show up as something other than who we naturally are. Also, I'm just thinking about how you labeled the good and bad, because that's how a lot of diet cultures are. Right. Yeah. Looking a certain way is either good or it's bad. And there is no in between. And the thing is, like, we are nothing but in between because on one day we could do a certain thing and another day we we don't. I think people with like ADHD and learning disabilities struggle to find the structure for themselves. So it's just easier to follow something that already exists and understand good and bad and not have to think in between because it requires too many decisions. But when you can't live up to that and that perfect mentality doesn't work, it never does. I mean, I talk about this all the time when it comes to my coaching philosophy. I call it best principles versus best practices because best practices assumes everyone can do the exact same thing and end up with the same results, which we know is complete garbage. I mean, look at how many diets are out there. If they worked, they wouldn't be in business. Like they have to have you fail. You'd never prescribe something that is going to fail 95% of the time. Yet people do it and they try a new one after it doesn't work, or maybe it works temporarily. When I think of best principles, I think like, what is your goal and how can we find the tools that work best for you? So if you were kind of struggling with food, you know, I was in thinking back to this journey when I was working with my friend who was a dietitian, I said to her, I was like, I love chicken nuggets. Like that is just like a safety net for me at all times. Like that was my go-to food when I was just like having a really crappy day. And I will tell you that like Wendy's chicken nuggets are forever my go-to favorite like food if I'm like need a pick me up of some kind. But I would also just stop on the side of the road if I could get it. But here's the thing. When you have these kinds of foods that make you feel good, that give you that dopamine, I don't want to label them as bad anymore. It was like, what could I add to it to make it more nutritious that still gives me that gratification that was like really special? I love broccoli. I've been really on a big spinach kick recently. Diet culture didn't tell me that like I need to eat spinach every day. My body is like, dude, how much more spinach can we eat in one day? Because like, I need more of it. I I just like, I'll have it in my omelet. I'll have it sauteed. It doesn't matter. I just like want more of it. I'm still eating the chicken nuggets. <laughs> like, they're delicious. And I don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's so many books about feeding children too, um, because that's another thing as a neurodivergent parent, I get really, really wrapped up in the good and bad of parenting too, right? And the good and bad of feeding our kids and really worried about, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? I'm obsessive about all of that and, and the rules, right? And I think one of the things, you know, nutrition is inherently ambiguous, which really bothers me. And I think why a lot of us turn to things like biohacking and, uh, you know, because it's like, we want to know what the answer is. And it's not, there is no defined answer in terms of a lot of these questions, which is really frustrating. I'm also just thinking, as you were saying, like feeding your kids, I have a one-year-old. When we, we had to start solids, I sat on the floor in my kitchen and cried because I was like, I struggle to figure out what I'm eating three times a day in snacks. And now I have to think of what my kid is going to eat. And people are like, Oh, you could just give her what you're eating. I'm like, you think that I thought that far out? 
like when I'm working all this much, like this is, this is really hard for me. It has gotten significantly easier, but that was really daunting to me. It was like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm presenting foods to her that are fun in addition to like nutritious, but have all the food groups. Like I always serve her quote unquote dessert that's appropriate for like a a one-year-old that is not like actually sweet, but to her is like fun. So I would make like these almond flour banana muffins. Like I put it out with everything else that she was eating. And sometimes she grabbed for that first and sometimes she doesn't grab at it at all. But like, that was something I was consciously doing. It took so much effort to be able to do, but also feel okay doing. Yeah. And, you know, those are all of those books, the parenting books about feeding kids where they say like, you know, children are very good about making sure that they uh, reach their own nutritional needs because they're so much more in tune with their bodies at a young age. So it's like, as long as everything's available to them, they will make the right choices. Even if it feels like all they're eating is mac and cheese and and chicken nuggets, if you kind of step back and look at their, you know, on a macro level, their nutritional needs over the course of a month. Uh, they will actually get what they need. And um, that's not necessarily broccoli with every single meal, but they will take care of themselves. And, and I'm like, do I do the same thing? Like, <laughs> like, you know, that idea of like, you know, your kid will eat what you eat. I'm like, I don't know if I want my kid to eat what he, I eat. Cause like yesterday, nothing but cheese. It's so like, <laughs> I know I saw some, I think it was on TikTok. This one was like, yeah, eat what I drank like a venti coffee from Starbucks and, and a protein bar at like four <laughs> o'clock. Like I, I, they're not eating what I'm eating, but. Well, I think that goes into that same idea of goodness and badness and like wanting to kind of like, I found so much, and this is, I know we're talking about food here, but this is getting more into parenting, which I think we could save for our parenting <laughs> right, issues. Right, right. But like this idea that like, I'm, it's a do-over with my kids, right? All the things that I fuck up on with it when it comes to myself, I'm like, but I'm not going to do that with my kids because I, they're going to, I don't know, it's going to somehow redeem me. Yeah. It just goes to show how messed up our relationship with self-care is. I really want to explore that more in future episodes because I feel like self-care for its own sake is really, I mean, it falls so squarely into the important but not interesting quadrant for me. And so as an adhd -er, I know I should do a lot of things, but should is never enough. And so I feel like so much, especially all of the stuff around food and nutrition falls very much into the like, what should I be doing right now versus what do I feel like doing? Yeah. I usually try and eliminate the should because it's like, who decided what the should was? Right. Or or like you said with the chicken nuggets, where you're like, look, I'm not going to get rid of the chicken nuggets. I'm just going to add in other things that also are great. And so then all of it is great. You know, like, so then I'm not going to feel bad. Yeah. I like add it to my salads. I'm like, cool. But I'm sort of, I still get caught up in the rules. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I still get caught up in the rules a lot, which is like, am I doing, am I doing enough? Yes. I never fit in. And I think that this also goes to me being diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD at eight is I never fit in to whatever was the norm. So I was kind of used to being the odd man out. And I kind of thought food was the same thing in a lot of ways. Like when I think back to like every family occasion, it was like such a joke. Like Alex is only going to eat chicken fingers or Alex is only going to eat plain pasta butter. But it was like, I was already being pointed out as different. 
And that was just like another thing that was different, that I was going to do things my own way. And what's interesting is a lot of that stuff when I watched other people behave that way. And I was like, no, (laughs) like, I don't want to be that person. And it wasn't that I wanted to fit in, but I was tired of sticking out completely for everything, not just because of my dyslexia or because of my ADHD or being pulled out for class or not because I had to have a special meal made for me because I was picky and wouldn't eat anything else. It was just like, for once, I wanted to not be the reason that something had to be different. Mm-hmm. That is interesting because I feel like... um you know, one of the things I work on with my clients is embracing our eccentricity, right? Which is like, yeah, like, why, you know, so many of us had that feeling of like, I want to be normal and help me be normal. And it's like, no, that's never going to happen. So let's embrace what you need to be you and what are your own energy levels and all of that stuff. And so I love the fact that you kind of embrace that at a young age, but also sort of had this, I guess, outsider view But it was how I was approaching it. The parts that I wanted to be seen as different was the unique qualities I had, not because of I needed to eat a certain way because I was picky or that I needed to be pulled out of class because I was stupid. I wanted to be seen as like the storyteller, the leader. I wanted to be seen for the qualities that I wanted to put out there and not for the qualities that I was embarrassed by. And I felt like those were qualities that I was starting to be embarrassed by that like at 16 years old that I needed to have plain pasta. I was like, what if I tried sauce? Mm. That's like a deep into my psyche of here's the diagnosis story of, of an eight-year-old. But it, I didn't realize all the impacts it had had just constantly being looked at as different. Yeah. Well, no, I think it comes back to the, what we were talking about before about masking and, and really wanting to feel like, you are putting off a, a a version of yourself that might be different from who you fundamentally are, but something that might, you know, impress people and, or, you know, the way in which we put a lot of effort into having this public version of ourselves, right? Like wh- what people think. I spent an enormous amount of time wondering, you know, if my books were cool enough on my bookshelf or, you know, wanting to impress people by my, you know, literary knowledge or my movie tastes or all of those things like you know one of the things I spent so much time doing was sort of cultivating this person that I thought would impress other people as opposed to really thinking about who I fundamentally was I always was very envious of people who didn't give a crap about that stuff (laughs) I don't know anyone who would tell you that they didn't they just didn't necessarily like maybe outwardly say it but they were thinking it. There's always like the subconscious of like, I'm looking around, they make this look so easy. And really, they're struggling with something that comes so naturally to you. That's why I always talk about like, having these like learning disabilities or ADHD. And I know people hate this term of saying like, it's a superpower, but I'm like, people are looking at us for strengths that we have that comes naturally to us that are so unique and so special. And I wanted people to see those things. I wanted people to see those strengths in me and not be focused on what was a number. I I actually, now that I'm saying this and I'm saying it this way, I 
wrote one of my college essays specifically on what it meant to be a number and that I was a number on a test that I would score a certain way and would always be lower or I was taking a certain amount. I didn't take any AP classes because I, no teacher ever thought that I could do them, which I probably in theory shouldn't have done them anyway. But I'll, I'll pretend that that's not true. You know, I wasn't taking this. What was the number on the scale? What, the number of times I had to take my road test, even though like, I don't know if that was the right expectation of, of passing on the first time. It took me four times, by the way. Welcome to New York, where they purposely fail you. And I'm anxious. Never been in an accident. I'm a great driver, but that was different story. I like wrote about all the things that came down to being a number and how I was so much more than a number. And if they read in between the lines of all the things that I was doing and how impactful I was on all of these different communities that I was building in, in my high school, that's what I wanted to be known for, not like my SAT scores. Didn't get into that many schools, but I do know that people read my essay because I got I had gotten a letter back specifically about my essay and how impactful it was. So I was like, well, that was pretty cool. I have to I have to find that. But I want I wanted to like focus on the on the number doesn't matter. Or like I'm gonna say this. If you have a scale in your home, what's it doing there? It has no impact on your day. It just doesn't bring any value to your life. If you're looking for external value, that's not it. What value can you find if you're looking for something that's external? How many texts did you get that day from friends saying like, I love you. I don't know. I'm making something up completely. But you get the idea, hopefully. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I've talked about this, I think, I don't know if I talk about this in my book so much, but I've talked about it on my Instagram account that like, for me, there was this realization when I was losing weight that, I, I mean, I would have these sort of momentary moments of happiness when I would reach certain goals, but there was this overall sense that it was never enough. I was just going to say it was never enough. Right? Like I was never happy. You know, I always felt like there was more to lose. And that was a huge realization for me one day, just feeling like, when does this end? Like, at what point, you know, I had this fundamental belief that I'm not happy enough yet. And so I'll be happier when I reach X goal. And I was like, that's the realization that like, no, that's not bringing you happy. The reason why you're not happy is not because you haven't reached the goal weight. It's because this is not a happy pursuit, right? And so as long as I keep finding things that are wrong with me, there's always going to be more things wrong with me. And that's where, right, where it was really this moment, this aha moment for me, where it was like, oh, yeah, no, 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 this is not how self-love works <laughs> or self-acceptance. That it, this is really about saying no to that idea that there's like things wrong with you just as a whole. Totally. I have felt that so much because, you know, my daughter's a year old and there was always that like, you got to bounce back. I'm like, my body is never going to look the same. It carried a human being for nine months. I have exclusively breastfed for a year. It is what it is. Like I'm going to buy a new pair of jeans and it might be a different size, but let me start off by telling my daughter clothing for women make no sense. So 
the number on the pair of jeans does not matter. It's how I feel in them. They should fit me. I don't need to fit in them. And I totally agree with it. There's like, it's never enough. I just like have tried so hard to actively dismiss that. And even when I was pregnant, I remember um, I was saying this to my therapist. I was taking weekly pictures from the side. And my husband was like, I can't believe you're doing this because I would never, ever, ever take pictures of me from the side because I would always be self-conscious about it. And I was like, this is beautiful right now. I didn't post them anywhere. They were just for me. No one else was seeing them besides like the two of us, but it was more like, why can't I appreciate what's happening to my body and embrace it rather than like focus on what is the number on the scale? It had no value in my life. It's true. In fact, yeah, I mean, the the only time I ever really embraced my body was when I was pregnant because I felt like I had permission to surrender to that. And it was really eye-opening, right? How that kind of freedom that I only allowed myself, well, now I do, but (laughs) at the time I was like that I only had allowed myself uh, when I was pregnant. There's so much to unpack. (sighs) So anyway, Final words on this topic of food and ADHD that comes to mind right now. I mean, I'm sure we will probably address this again in the future, but, or I don't know, maybe some of your favorite books or resources. One thing I will say, I, I was having this conversation with my client earlier today, so this is why it's front of mine, but I started writing out lists and uh, Katie, you and I have talked about this, that you had some resources of people who had lists of like proteins and fats and fiber and carbon, like different categories of things to help pair. And that was something that I found to be really helpful for myself when I couldn't make decisions on food was what were visually, what could I look at that could give me a sense of protein, fat, fiber, carb that I could have at all times. And also what were the staples? And I list like all the staples that I would have in my fridge, freezer, pantry that were always easy go-tos that required very little effort. And there's like a whole thing with like crudite boards and cheese boards. And I'm like, these are the elevated version of Lunchables. That could be your dinner. Like you don't have to think that hard of like buying some string cheese, buying some crackers and some fruit. And like, you've got some protein, you've got some fat, you've got some fiber. If you get a certain type of cracker, like that could be part of a fun meal, like even throw a cookie in there. So you have something sweet, whatever we can do to help like reduce that, I think is making a big difference. So Katie, I love, I, I think it would be helpful. I know you had a few that you've shared. I think it could be good to put in the show notes potentially, and even in the ADHD lounge of places that we go to, or even people that we follow that are, you know, I, I'd love to go back to Alita and Sarah to post some of their their work, but we also, you'd mentioned a few other ADHD dietitians that we follow that have really great tips for on the go. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and yeah, Tara Brusso is the one who did the snack hacking. I'll put a link to her snack hacking. It's so cool. It's so awesome. And I love the visual, but yeah, that's one of the things I've been able to do eventually. It took me years and years and years 
to really come to a place of peace around food in my body. And I don't even know if I'm still there because I'm a woman um, living in this world. So, you know, I think that's one thing I always try to remind myself is that this is a process. This isn't, (laughs) there's no end game here. But it's not about you. It's everybody else's problem. Like you've, you've come to the realization of what's important for you. And if somebody else doesn't agree with it, like, okay, that's on them. Well, and I try to remind myself every anytime I'm like tempted to do a diet or or go there, I just I talk myself through a lot of the like, yeah, we've done this. We know where this ends, right? Like let's just skip to the good part, which is <laughs> when we're not on the diet anymore. Um <laughs> But it's true what you said, like one of the things I do try to do with shopping is make sure that I have a lot of those staples. Peanut butter is one of the big staples. I always have apples. I love apples. I One of the things I never get sick of. And so uh, apples and baby carrots. And I will, I mean, I feel like peanut butter and baby carrots is one of my favorite meals. I think we've talked about this with hummus and baby carrots too, right? Hummus and cucumber for me is actually like mm. my staple. I cut them up. Right. When I was working at a newspaper, um, I, I it became my hyper-focused food. And I would stop on my way to work and buy a bag, a little bag of baby carrots and a hummus container. And that would be my dinner. And everybody made fun of me because they were like, how is that? What? And I would just sit there at my desk for like over the course of three hours, just eating the entire container of hummus and carrots. And but people would make fun of me because they were like, that's not a meal. And I was like, I don't know. It seems like a great meal to me. It was, you know. It's helpful for me to think in terms of like, do I have my checklist? So my checklist is protein, carb, and a fruit or veg for fiber. And that's like, that's for me. And then I'm like, as long as I've got all of those covered, then I feel like I'm good. Even if that, no matter what that looks like, because sometimes it's literally like a can of tuna on a piece of toast with some cheese on top. Right. And then I'm like, boom, boom, boom. Got it. But that's the goal. And that's, it's not always a hundred percent. Like sometimes you're going to go out to eat and it's like the fruit or the veggie of that meal just doesn't sound appealing. And I think that that's also something to be like, it's not a hundred percent of your meals and snacks that need to have all of those things. Yes, exactly. That's true too, is that you take a macro look, step back and and trust the fact that you're going to be looking after your nutritional needs because you're capable of doing that. So like, we're not, I don't feel like we, I feel like at a, you know, a lot of the things that people are afraid of when they give up diet culture is they're like, I'm going to eat nothing but chocolate chip cookies because that's all I want to eat. And that that's going to be that way forever. And it's really like talking to them through the fact that like, there is going to be a phase where you're going to have to work through this and you probably are going to want to eat all the things that were your forbidden foods and that's totally okay but you do even out and you do get to a point where they you can have oreos in your cabinet for months and months and months literally it's been there since december it is like seven months and you will willingly eat salad and spinach again at some point like you just have to have faith that you will get there like a little baby you will (laughs) you will figure it out you will figure it out the other thing i was going to say that has this is from years of living in New York City that I got very spoiled doing this, but it is ordering my groceries because I would get super overwhelmed going through the grocery store and having to decide what type of bread was I buying and and I have to stand there and look at all the things or I would forget because obviously I would forget something that was on my list or I was going to decide I was going to make something. And now like it's in a totally different aisle and 
I can't find it and I would get frustrated. So I order my groceries and like throughout the week, if I'm like looking through the fridge and I can't find one of my staples, I'm adding it to my cart. And by the end of the week, I've like ordered my groceries to pick up. And I have found that to be such a source of comfort for me because I was far less likely to have an empty fridge or freezer or a cabinet because I didn't have to like go to the grocery store. Like that to me was always very overwhelming to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, I really miss Fresh Direct from my time. <laughs> do you get Fresh Direct where you are? Do they deliver? Yeah, we do. I used to use Fresh Direct all the time. Same. I use them all the time when I lived in New York and they were amazing. They have the best bags. <laughs> I lived there pre-bag. Uh, when I lived there, they just had the boxes, but it was still, it was the same idea of like having a, just knowing exactly what you're going to have. And uh, yeah, I feel like those are really neurodivergent friendly. And when they had like the prepared meals, I know people got really, especially in diet culture, get really wrapped up and like, you don't know what they're making. And like, it's a meatball. Like, you probably know there's some kind of meat, there's some kind of sauce, it's salt and pepper and garlic and seasoning of some kind. Okay, I bought meatballs. What can I do with meatballs? I can put it on pasta. I can make it a sandwich. I can put it on a pizza. I could do all these different things. Like you can look at prepared food and have it be in your fridge and have it be so much easier for you to evolve into whatever meal that you needed to, but having that staple also really helps. Like I used to buy their grilled chicken all the time and I would sometimes throw it on a salad and sometimes I would make a sandwich out of it. It didn't matter, but it was one less step to think about. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, this wraps up our our episode series on food, but I'm sure, like I said, we'll come back to it because it is so, um, I think something that invades many other elements of our life so thanks for sharing your experience alex and like i said we will have a lot more resources and community elements and talking about this in the lounge so if you want to come join us in the lounge go to the adhdlounge.com and um, yeah we'd love to have you and do you, katie do you want to mention what we're talking about in next month's theme Well, next month, we are actually talking about reframing our ADHD and kind of what does that look like? And we're going to be talking with two fantastic ADHD coaches, Brie Plyler of Current ADHD Coaching and Andy Gill, who is, uh, I can't, I can't think of what his Instagram handle is, but anyway, they're both wonderful ADHD coaches. And we're going to be talking about kind of ways in which we, can show ourselves a little more grace and and reframe some of our eccentricities. <laughs> I'm like, what are some? I don't even want to call them deficits, but you They're know, uh, looking at it's just looking at some of the things that we tend to struggle with and really coming at it, coming to a place of acceptance and working with you know, looking at some of those things as um, the other side of the coin and how even our, even what we believe as deficits are actually strengths in disguise. There you go. (laughs) Awesome. All right. We'll see you for next episode. And that's a wrap for this episode of the ADHD Lounge Podcast. Thank you for listening and make sure to join us over at ADHDlounge.com. We've got resources, 
co-working, workshops, and a community of amazing ADHD folks just like yourself. And you can also attend these recordings live where you can ask questions and join in these discussions as they're happening. So make sure to head over to the ADHDlounge.com to join us today and you can find that link in the show notes. And if you've made it this far and you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback means the world to us and it helps us reach more listeners who could benefit from these conversations. Seriously, do it. Go now before you forget. <laughs>